Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have on a very special guest. Today we have on Dean Rickles. He's professor of history and philosophy of modern physics at the University of Sydney, Australia, where he's also director of the Sydney Center for Time. His many books include Covered with Deep Mist, The Development of Quantum Gravity, and A Brief History of String Theory. And his newest book, available now, is called Life is Short, an appropriately brief guide to making it more meaningful. Welcome, Dean. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Thank you for coming on. So in this book, Dean wrote, we have no special sense organ for time. We only see processes in time, and these processes are sometimes, unfortunately, associated with our aging. The motions of celestial bodies marking out the years, clocks ticking, calendars being turned over, pages and diaries being filled up, and so on. The saddest thing about time, or at least our journey through it is, of course, that it is seemingly taking place down a one-way street. We can't re-experience old events directly, only by accessing memories. Hence, we have a key element of its preciousness. Every event is unique, never to be repeated. As another Roman writer, the Epicurean philosopher Lucretius puts it in De Rerum Natura, presently, the present will have gone, never to be recalled. If we adopt an economics of value and scarcity, then we can see why time is so valuable. One should use this resource most wisely, counsels Seneca, not wasting any of it on frivolous pursuits. And yet, that is exactly what most people do, complaining about not having enough time on earth while squandering it. Uh, so I love that. And actually, what I'd love to do is I'd love to begin about, with a conversation about Seneca. And so oftentimes when we think about Seneca, it's uh, sort of, I guess, in the kind of mainstream, the thinking is that he talks about the shortness of life and, you know, kind mm -hmm. of how, how kind of brief it is. Right. But essentially, the argument that you're making is that not so not so quick. Right. So Seneca mostly talks about the time spent and how we spent it as opposed to the shortness of life per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's probably the, the crucial uh, difference between my book, even though they've got very similar titles. Obviously, Seneca's book you're referring to is On the Shortness of Life. This was originally conceived, this book, as some sort of um, modernization of Seneca's book. But as I went into it, I discovered that there were these significant differences. And the main difference, uh, and this holds for pretty much all Stoics, actually, is that they try and sort of dismiss finitude of life and say look it's not short you're just misusing it if you use it wisely then it's you know it can be as as uh, as long or short as you like and it will be sort of a, a fulfilled life the the main I, I mean i agree with parts of that but the main argument of of my book is that that finite boundary is absolutely crucial to sort of being forced and having the sense of urgency to make to fill up the time well even though it is a you know a short time, it's forcing you to fill up your time um, consciously, and um, yeah, and so this is where you know I end up going into things like um, depth psychology, which obviously was not available in Seneca's day. Mm -hmm. But so I would say that's pretty much the, the key difference between my own view and the Stoics is this sort of a focus on the the necessity of this finite boundary, i.e., death. Whereas the Stoics tend to downplay death and say it's not, you know, especially not so much Seneca, but um, Epicurus, for example, will mm -hmm. say, look, you really don't need to worry about death. You're not going to be there when you die. So you don't need to worry. Right. The bit that comes after you die is exactly the same as the bit that went before you, you were born. You don't worry about that bit. So why would you worry about death? And that's kind of what I'm disagreeing with in this book. And it, and it fits the seize the moment idea pretty well, because totally, what I'm saying yeah. is the fact there's there's that finiteness there is the very thing that is forcing you to take notice of those moments, because that's what's giving them their preciousness. If there was no finite boundary, there would be none of this scarcity and there would be no urgency in making sure that you are seizing the moments when they should be seized. I love it. Alan, did you want to say something? No, of oh, course, yeah. So, hang on, my headphones have gone. Just give me a second. Okay. Oh, sure. I'll try it like this. Batteries must have run out. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, what What would you say to those who say, you know, uh, life is so so short. We're gonna die anyway. Everybody dies. It's 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 essentially meaningless. Uh, one one day. Uh, the universe, uh, you know, uh, the universe keeps expanding, right? But then one day it'll contract and all life will uh, cease to exist. What's what's the point in any of it anyway? Why why should I uh, strive for anything? Why should I try to achieve anything? 
what's what's the point of it all? <laughs> Alan is a resident nihilist. No, 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 no. Okay, no, 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 okay, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, I mean, so what you gave there is it? It's very similar to an example I give from um, from Annie Hall from Woody Allen's Annie Hall, which is where Alvy Singer, this young boy, learns about the expansion and contraction of the universe right and kind of getting quite worried about it He's, and says exactly what you said it's like you know what you know what's the point of it all if we're if it's going to expand and break apart and we're all going to die and then his mother takes him to the doctor and the doctor says well look that's not going to happen for millions of years you know so you don't need to worry about that and then his mother kind of says you know why are you worrying about expanding brooklyn's not expanding mm -hmm. so <laughs> I think but, it is. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah. So the the I mean, this is one of the interesting things, and I, I mentioned this a bit in the book. We tend to um, we do tend to discount the future. So if it's mm -hmm. happening in billions of years, we think, well, it doesn't matter so much as if it's happening now. But there is a certain irrationality to that, actually. So we might think that Alvi Singer is actually being a bit more rational. I mean, ultimately if your projects and your strivings will be literally taken out of existence because space and time will be taken out of existence then why why bother and one of, but one of the other arguments i give in this book is that there is um meaning in the the choices we make because we're sort of intimately bound with the way that the universe gets to evolve so we we think we've got the full story when it comes to the nature of the universe and cosmology one of the things i get to in the final chapter which is a bit more you know my home field of foundations of physics and whatnot mm -hmm. is that we really don't know as much as we think we know when it comes to physics and when it comes to the the place of the mind and consciousness in the world and there are plenty of completely reasonable theories i mentioned one by this guy john wheeler which mm -hmm. involve the um not so much consciousness, some kind of sentience, and that he calls it a participator uh, in deciding what the universe does next. So the idea is the universe doesn't know what it's going to do next. And you're playing a role by asking particular questions of it. And then it decides. And it, and you're not, you don't know what the, the universe is going to give you next. There's, a, there's an indeterminacy there. But mm -hmm. it doesn't know either what it's going to do until you have framed the nature of its evolution and the direction that it's going to go in. So we don't know that things are going to end up in a big crunch. We don't know that things are going to end up eternally expanding. There are a whole bunch of cosmologists who deal with these kinds of things who have completely different um, versions of how things might go, which are just as well supported by the evidence. So, you know, it's it would be a mistake to read too much into our scientific theories, especially of cosmology, which is where we have the least information remember we've only got the experience of one single universe to go on right. we can't replicate it and see how it how it goes and do proper experiments in cosmology so you know so <laughs> i think you can sort of you, you can sort of bracket some of those kind of nihilistic um ideas because there are there are versions that don't necessarily need to be nihilistic and the other point of the of the book as it gets into this final chapter is that Again, it's that finite boundary of death that is forcing us to make choices in the first place, mm -hmm. which then will guide where the universe goes. So if we didn't have that, we would be able to explore all possibilities and nothing would really be meaningful in the sense of forging who we are. So we think of our decisions and our cho specific choices as forging who we are. And we're taking a path. And as we're taking a path through the universe, the universe is following us and feeling what we do and changing itself accordingly so i think there's a sort of a huge response to this kind of nihilism by looking at some of the some of the possibilities of physics and combining it with this very real fact that we do have an end to this these um, lives and and that it, it sort of works in a nice coherent way how they all fit together yeah and it's really you know, and there's 
Uh, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. So, yeah, and you know what I was thinking about? So uh, one of our recurrent guests, Michael Shermer, he actually wrote a really phenomenal article in Scientific American that I actually use with my clients oftentimes. Uh, so I'm an existential psychotherapist. And so a lot of oh. the times we talk about death, 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 anxiety in particular. So Michael Shermer wrote an entire piece on the Alvey paradox, right, basing it on Annie Hall. And so Shermer's conception of it was really, I, I really loved it. It was super astute. And the thinking was that there are these sort of different degrees of scale, right? And so for Shermer, the idea was that there was this cosmic scale which obviously none of us are ever really going to influence, right? So it's pretty much the trajectory of the universe from the Big Bang onward, you know, to whatever that is, right? Whether it's the big freeze or the big crunch, wherever it's going, we really don't have much say in that, right? Then you have this other, you know, uh, kind of beneath it, you have uh, another scale. And this scale is like, he would call this like the national scale, right? It's sort of, uh, or the international scale, where you would be mm -hmm. pretty much important on a global, in a global sense, right? You'd maybe be, uh, you'd be important. And let's say if you're in the US, you'd be important to the community at large here. Uh, let's say if you were an international uh, diplomat of some sorts, maybe you'd be important on a global scale, you know, whatnot. But let's say that's the second level. And then the third level of significance is your community. And this is what Alvi's mom was saying when she essentially said, uh, the universe isn't expanding in Brooklyn, right? So the idea there is that, well, you matter here, right? You matter to us in this little part, in this little corner of the universe. Like, why are you worrying about this other part of it or this other sense or this other uh, scale? So what I love about Shermer's conception is he essentially says, like, look, even though, yes, you're not going to be significant in the global or some Sometimes you not sometimes you wouldn't be significant on the cosmic scale, and you probably won't even be significant on the global scale. But that's okay because you still matter to the community you're in. You still matter to your family members, right? When you pass away, people are going to care. People are going to mourn your death. Uh, you're mm -hmm. going to have an impact on people's lives. You might not be able to see it, but let's say you know 20, 30 years, somebody might remember something that you did for them, something that you said for them. So that ties in super nicely to what you talk about because when you're thinking about now community and you're thinking about who we are in terms of our contribution to the the world, we don't need to think about it in narcissistic terms, where again, we have to either be important in a cosmic sense, which is obviously never going to happen, or we even have to be important on a global sense, which is probably not going to happen. So I like what Shermer says in the sense that you can find meaning and you can still have a meaningful life, even within the smaller scale. Yeah. Um, I mean, Shermer would probably hate some of the things I say in the last chapter actually I think he would find, he would be very skeptical of a lot of things I mean I, he's he's obviously right that um yeah depending on yeah depending on the complexity of the system you're looking at you're going to have certain direct influences you can and it's more a case of you can see uh the influence more quickly depending on the scale if somebody's standing next to you you quickly see the effect that you have on them so you say we're not going to have an effect on a cosmic scale. That's not that's not really true. It means that you're not going to see the effect right. on a cosmic scale. But there will always be for any movement, any free action you do, there's going to be some ripple that affects things at a cosmic scale. But you won't see it because of the time scale, your memory, your the, just the finite nature of your body, even. So I mean, I would say that Michael Shermer's argument is true but it goes across all scales. And it's, it's basically just our limitations that prevent us from seeing our cosmic um, impact as well. One of the interesting things and one of the things that Shermer would hate about the um, the John this approach of John Wheeler's, this physicist John Wheeler's that I use in the final chapter, mm -hmm. is that he says, I mean, you can almost have a direct um, influence on the universe which can be seen instant, um, seen as directly as somebody standing next to you. So one of the examples he gives, he has this thing called, sorry to go into so much physics here, but no, please, no, please, please, yeah, please. This is great. Crops, up, crops up in the book. Uh, one of the examples he gives is this thing called the delayed choice experiment, where if you, if you don't make a measurement and there's a, a superposition where the system, where some quantum system doesn't know what state it's in yet. And it's sort of in the past now. This maybe went through one slit or the other in one of these double slit experiments, or it's in the Schrodinger's cat state. And you get to decide once the system has evolved in, in the past, and we get to decide it now, whether it went one way or the other. And he says we can do this, and we do do this, even when we're looking at the light that comes from the Big Bang. So if we're looking at the microwave background radiation that comes from the Big Bang, right, the first light, mm -hmm. then it has a polarization. And we have to decide which angle we're going to measure the photons at. The universe doesn't know which state it's in until we have decided how to set our measuring devices. So in a sense, 
we now get to decide how things were back at the Big Bang. Wow. Hmm. So there really is sort of this huge cosmic um, influence. Wow. Strange kind of influence. We're not able to wiggle things or anything like that. Wiggle the light, the original light. But we get to decide which path it took for the universe to get to us. So there's cosmic purpose. Uh, there's cosmic influence as well. But I still I still do agree with um, this basic point of Michael Shermer's. I don't agree with much of what Michael Shermer says, actually. He's a bit over <laughs> for my for my taste, but he's yeah, he's good to um to form ar arguments against because he <laughs> says things clearly and directly. Interesting. And and then these these effects that we have uh on a I suppose on a cosmic level, is is that would you say that they're uh, incredibly subtle and that's why we're not able to necessarily see what it is that we're what we're doing or is it kind of like a, on a scale of sort of like a butterfly effect sort of a deal like uh, you do you do one particular action you don't know the all the the ripple effects of that particular action but it does happen to have a ripple effect that at scale is is way grander than something you could understand um so, i mean something like that i mean the way the way the these examples are framed are usually in very um basic systems as i say one one photon for example coming from the big bang mm -hmm. which you have a very elaborate you know apparatus set up that can measure these these things and these are mostly thought experiments but something like that um would be going on for you know the, the systems of light and radiation that are coming from um mm -hmm. deep space so most of the time we're not sort of explicitly setting up experiments that will definitely determine you know the which angle we're measuring the light at and these kind of things but it's um you know there's a i mean the point is there is a serious reasonable theory of physics that fits the data that makes new predictions um that say something very different about our role in the universe hmm. and i think and the point of the book is that this provides not not the meaning of life but it can provide some meaning for people who might find themselves to be nihilistic you know, lots of other people will get their meaning in different ways. There's the way that Shermer mentioned, where you can say, I'm not bothered about the cosmic scale. I'm just concerned about these local interactions I'm having here. That's fine. And then they get their meaning from that. Religious people will get their meaning in a different way. This is a way that might provide a different, you know, another class of, of people who struggle in finding meaning to find some some degree of meaning in what looks like a bleak universe. So if you have this sort of materialistic mindset where you just think, well, you know, it's just science, everything's just just atoms and space. Well, here's a here's a piece of physics that can give you something different and a, and a little bit deeper and connect you to the universe and provide a bit of meaning. Right. And, and you can I'm still find meaning. Sorry, carry on. No. Yeah. So and I was thinking in terms of just now who are you be who are you going to become and what you're doing with your life. I mean, essentially you argue that death is sort of the purpose of it in some sense, right? If we could think of it as, you know, our own kind of interpretation of its purpose, is for us to kind of remember that this is all going to end someday. And that if we're all going to just, you know, essentially be complacent, we're not trying to, you know, change our lives, fix things in some, you know, to some extent, if you want to kind of use that term, right? So the idea is that now we have this ideal self that we're constantly sort of trying to uh, let's say kind of manifest right or we're trying to sculpt in some sense and so with the idea of death is that you know fundamentally we could just keep putting it off putting it off putting it off forever right and you know what's so interesting is that i often think about this in the context of like negative emotions right so when my clients come into therapy they say something like oh well i don't want to feel these things right i don't want to feel anxious i don't want to feel let's say sad i don't want to feel angry anymore right and, and i often tell them you know and this is why i love thought experiments i say okay imagine a world where you don't have these things right let's let's kind of think that through right so imagine a world where you're let's say never anxious okay what do you think that's like and they'll say oh well i'm happy right and i'm like okay but let's think that through right what does that mean you're happy well you know uh then i'm not really suffering anymore and let's say you know i'm kind of just living my life i'm like okay but imagine this right there's no fear do you think now you're taking absurd risks uh, well, no, I don't think I do that. Well, why not? Right. You don't have fear guiding you anymore. Right. Oh, well, you know, I might have my reason or something or something along those lines. Right. But I would say, you know, reason and fear are pretty much entangled. And the idea is if you don't really have anything to be afraid of, if you look at reason as like, let's say in the human sense, where it's just a way for you to manifest certain desires, right. Or protections for yourself. Um, you're probably not really going to have much of a desire to protect yourself. Right. Because you're not really afraid of death. So yes, on the one hand, you could say, well, I want to continue living, you know, for whatever reason, but if I'm not really afraid of dying, I don't know how 
how seriously you would take that. And so you could think about this in terms of guilt and shame. You know, if we didn't feel any of those things, well, you know, the problem is now we're going to be pretty reckless with our behaviors. So if I don't feel guilty for harming this person, who's to say that I'm not going to do something that, that I'm not going to do the same thing next time, right? If I don't feel ashamed of myself, uh, who's to say I'm going to really care about being an important member of the community? And mm-hmm. I think that's so that's so kind of conducive or that sort of thinking is conducive to death anxiety, because on the one hand, so many of us think we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to die. Uh, if we could, we want to live like tens of thousands of God knows how many years, right? We'll probably even become immortal. But when you start thinking about immortality and some of the downsides of it, a lot of people will come to realize that that's maybe not something that they would exactly want. So Dean, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that immortality or lack of immortality of mortality, how it kind of helps us lead more meaningful lives? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so there's the point, I mean, yeah, there's the point you made, which is that if you take away this um, principle, I mean, it's quite clearly there's an evolutionary argument behind it, right? It's also serving an evolutionary role of keeping you from doing stupid things and taking mm-hmm. unnecessary risks. But there's a there's a different. Um, you can take it in a different way. So um, so Spinoza has has this view, a little bit like the Stoics, which is that it's irrational to be doing these memento mori kind of things where you're meditating on death to you know realize how precious things are what you should do is not meditate on death because that makes you uh, um upset <laughs> basically mm-hmm. in the ways you just said so you should try and alleviate and eliminate all suffering and you can do the same you know you can sort of do the same sort of thought experiment you just mentioned and say okay well okay spinoza let's imagine that we take away all of these these hardships and we eliminate all suffering and you do, you know, something like the matrix and you plug yourself into this matrix. And it, it's basically just giving every, every want and need that you want, that you, you know, every desire, it feeds it so that there's never any hardship and there's never any suffering. Well, I don't know, maybe some people would do it, but it would very quickly get um, meaningless, basically. It, you would start to stagnate. And I mentioned um, this particular example of, uh, there's a biologist, John Calhoun, who did these um, famous experiments on mouse colonies. And he essentially did um, made this thought experiment a real one, but using mice. So he raised some in these utopian colonies where they had every need taken care of without having to sort of, you know, forage for food or do anything like this. They, I think we probably got tickled a lot. And it was just like this little pleasurable wonderland for mice. And then you have this other colony where there are hardships and they have to fight to survive and there's competition basically and when you um, look at the evolutions of the two colonies well the ones that have the utopian conditions not only stagnated but they died more quickly so you know it's sort of a direct empirical i mean it's it's using mice rather than humans but you can it's not unreasonable to extrapolate you know that um, if you tried something like this with humans, and you can even see it in certain situations with humans, those who are born into very privileged circumstances tend to be very, very depressed because they're not having to strive or struggle for any of the things that they're getting. And the de- rates of depression are probably quite a bit higher than those who have had to work through to some sort of, um, to achieve some sort of status. So, you know, there's plenty of examples showing um, how, how these sort of limitations and constraints are important for providing a sense of of meaningful life and purpose um so i mean that's you know that's another aspect of this book it's not just the constraint of death but limitations and constraints in in general and having something to push against i think are of of vital importance on the um the main question that you asked about immortality and the role that uh, mortality and immortality would play. I mean, if you take away that that boundary um, and we become immortal, then we, we lose this um, necessity to choose specific paths. Because as I said earlier, you can then think about exploring all possible paths and it doesn't matter as much if something goes wrong or if something doesn't work. There's, there's less hanging on particular choices that you make because over time if you've got infinite time you can sample every possibility and you can sample them multiple times so i mean i've been thinking about um the idea that even if we were i mean supposing that we were 
gods and we were immortal, it, it almost strikes me that we would have to come up with some ways of limiting ourselves and simulating death so that we don't have this sense of nothing mattering and, and being able to explore all possibilities. Because there's, there's something sort of virtual. It's not real. Um, mm. It's not a real event or a happening if if all, all probabilities happen. It's a little bit like going back to physics again, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, right. where, you know, you have your Schrodinger's cat state, it's in the box, it's attached to some um, radioactive material that has half half a chance of decaying and killing the cat half a chance of not decaying and the cat being alive and until you look in the box you don't know which is which is which and it's actually in a strange state of both dead and alive right. so and then the many worlds interpret interpretation says well when you look in the box it's not the case that it becomes one or the other dead or alive both happen and go their separate paths in this you know multiverse so the cat is alive and you see it as alive in one branch and the cat is dead and you see it as dead in the other branch. But that means nothing's actually happened because everything's happened. Hmm. So there's sort of no definiteness to the world. So it's a kind of virtual reality. So, right. I, yeah, you go. It was, so, and I think what you're saying, and this is what I love right now, we're going into clinical territory where we're thinking of narcissism. And this is essentially the argument that I would give my clients, right? So the thinking is, well, you know, reason can sort of combat, uh, let's say, bad decisions. But then I would argue, how is that possible, right? So imagine, let's say, narcissistic personality disorder. You have really no fear, fundamentally. And oftentimes, these people are pretty impulsive and reckless. So it's not so much that the thinking is, well, I'm not going, well, I don't want to die, right? The thinking is more like, I'm not going to die. So therefore, mm -hmm. it's the sort of fear. And in this case, maybe the death anxiety that kind of keeps us humble right if we're talking about it in existential terms so what mm -hmm. the the point i think we're both making here is that our feelings are essentially fundamental to make us uh, to make us to instill or enforce a sense of humility because otherwise what we would do is we would sort of feel ourselves to be invincible like we don't have any sort of limitations and that's pretty much antithetical to a good life dean um, out of curiosity uh, would you say to that that narcissism uh it would be sort of like a bulletproof vest in a way like there's an egocentrism about it that's uh like it, it's almost like an escape from death by believing that you're invincible uh but not really dealing with um the reality of death and life yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean there's a chapter that directly addresses this and i mentioned right. this really by some uh a really nice treatment of um gene arendale you may know this book where she talks about um, the fortress of I, where narcissists create a fortress of I. And the this fortress is basically a package of defenses that they believe make them invincible and invulnerable. But what's happening is they're presenting, they're basically just a lot of projections and defense mechanisms that protect this very vulnerable inner version that the world can't see. Because they're, it's basically shame. They're ashamed of the thing that's inside this, this fortress but for i mean it's slightly different reasons but again they're not really experiencing the world because it's this um package of defenses that it's going out into the world and it's the package of defenses that if anything good happens well it's not this vulnerable core person that that receives the accolades so they don't feel good if there are accolades because it's the the shiny beast this fortress of eye that gets the accolades if things bad happen to it, well, they feel the shame then. But so they can never sort of feel good ab about their interactions with the world because it's never really them interacting with the world. It's always this package of defense mechanisms. So I actually call it bulletproofing in mm -hmm. the book. And I, I'm a little bit mean to this. Um, you know, there's this Dave Asprey guy who invented this range of bulletproof products. And I don't mind them. They're fine. But like, it's the some of some of the writings are things like you know get rid of everything that makes you weak and it's exactly the sort of invincible um persona that is being being pursued for the sake of nothing other than having the invincible persona there's nothing behind it and he does things like he has stem cells injected into his brain and things like this and i'm not sure for what purpose there's not there's sort of <laughs> it's the purpose is for for not dying Mm -hmm. This is all about not dying, but there's not much being preserved that's sort of generating um, value. So, yeah, maybe I'm, I went a bit over the top in that chapter, but 
but I agree, yes. I mean, and it's protecting them from the world and it's a different kind of virtual reality. And often what you find with um, um, people with narcissistic personality disorder is this tendency not to um, not to make decisions that matter. They try to not make big decisions. So there's, um, and I refer to it as the puer eternus. You know, this is mm -hmm. Jung's phraseology, puer eternus complex. And there's a great book by his, um, one of his students, Marie-Louise von Franz, on the puer eternus complex. And it's the idea that they never settle. They will never settle on one thing because they always think they deserve better and there is something better. So they'll never stick with a girlfriend. They'll never stick with a job because jobs are for ordinary people, right? And commitments are for ordinary people. So they're living in this strange virtual reality where they're not telling the universe what path to go down because it's every strand is left open. Every path is left open. There's no actual proper sculpting of their the statue that makes them who they are because they're not willing to commit and risk um, sacrificing some piece because that would make them vulnerable, right? Mm. Facing the consequences of, of particular actions. So... So, yeah, I mean, there's a huge um, component of dealing with this narcissist, uh, the problem of narcissism in this book towards the end of the book, the last couple of chapters. And yeah, I mean, the standard, the standard way that Jung suggests for getting out of it is basically just committing to anything, any job, anything just to make this stake in the ground or chisel one piece of the, of the, sculpture once and for all to make something happen so there's a few things going on in there i don't know whether i answered that question no 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 for sure absolutely i mean essentially you're 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 feeding a false self it's not really you're not authentically really uh, dealing with life on life's terms these are just essentially defense mechanisms that are invented whether uh, consciously or unconsciously just to as a, as a sort of protection and unless you actually embrace let's say embrace your fear or embrace uh life's challenges embrace that one day you're going to die you can't mm -hmm. actually really live life and experience life or have really meaningful uh connections you may have some semblance of it but you won't get all the way there essentially yeah so i was going to say the other thing um that's important here which is also in the book is um, the business of individuation. So the, the business of individuation is precisely the procedure of tackling these kinds of problems so that when you are engaging with the world, you know that it's you engaging in, with the world and not some complex or package of defenses. And given what I then say at the end of the book about how important your actions are, you want to make sure that it is actually you acting on the world and your decisions really are your decisions rather than being bounced around. So I love this metaphor Jung has of a cork in an ocean. So most of us are like this cork in an ocean. We think we feel like we're moving ourselves around, but really we're getting bounced around by a whole bunch of other forces, including forces inside us, not just external forces, but unconscious forces that we haven't processed yet and brought them into, into reality. Right? You have to do a whole bunch of shadow work of, as you say, facing your fears and these kinds of things and bringing them to the surface so that the thing that's going out in the world and telling the universe what it's going to be and what it's going to do next and carving these paths is definitely coming from your authentic self and it's not mm -hmm. being driven by something else. Right. And I would add to that in just in terms of narcissism, one can even argue that fundamentally narcissism is a fear of negative feelings. So narcissists tend to be uh, pretty hedonistic. So they're really great with pleasure, right? Obviously. I mean, for them, they kind of, they're ultimate pleasure seekers. So they can't really deal with boredom. So therefore they go into like, they become addicts in terms of gambling, uh, you know, maybe womanizing, whatever you want to kind of throw in there. Uh, so they're very good at pleasure seeker, right? But they're really terrible at the stress tolerance. So they're really like high anxiety fundamentally, and they try to avoid it. That's kind of the avoidance tendencies they try their best to avoid guilt shame shame is you know one can argue the fundamental core of narcissism uh and then yeah and i mean anxiety in terms of even like just carving out a life for themselves and thinking for themselves you know like is this the best that it's ever going to get for me uh i don't want to mm -hmm. consider myself as having limitations or whatnot and so yeah man a lot of what you get with them and this is kind of the hardest thing to deal with is again this sort of distress tolerance in terms of helping them see that the emotions and negative emotions are fundamentally always going to be a part of their lives so they can evade them for whatever amount of time but they're inescapable long term so you so you're in a clinical um practice right you have clients i mean do you do you see an increase in these kind of behaviors because one of the things i 
I sort of hint at in the book is that there's a an epidemic almost that has something to do with maybe things like social media right because uh, there's more judgment obviously one of the things is judgment and shame if you've got more ways of being judged then you've got more ways of feeling shame so i wonder if you see sort of increases or changes in the nature of the um you know if you want to call it narcissism these kinds of behaviors yeah. So it's a really hard question for me to answer just because I've only been practicing since 2015. So uh, I don't really have much of a long-term view. Uh, so other clinicians have definitely said that there have been increases, but then other clinicians would say, well, the reason why is because more, most, more people are most people, I don't know, to whatever, it depends on what area you're looking at. A lot of people are in therapy today. So what you're seeing is that there are more diagnoses because most more people are coming into therapy, right? One can argue that for narcissists, they don't necessarily come into therapy for themselves. They do so more so to complain about other people, to figure out if they should get divorced or not, you know, to figure out why their boss is such an asshole, whatever. But my thinking is, is that it's possible that it's some conflation of the two. There might be a rise in it to some extent, but then the other, the other, I think, significant portion of it is that more people are turning to therapy. Uh, and the reason is because therapy isn't seen as something to be ashamed of, even though still a lot of narcissistic people are highly ashamed of having to, you know, talk about their shame or whatnot. But again, what a lot of narcissistic people do is they use therapy as just a way to kind of shit on other people. <laughs> I, I could make an argument for why there might be more cases of it, although uh, we'll we'll see. But it, it's possible that uh, well. So uh, where where we were um, uh, many uh, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, uh, or for that I should say thousands of years ago, uh, we we're uh, accustomed to being in tribes of what uh, 50, 100, 150 people essentially, right? And unless you're living, let's say, in a in a city with lots of different people. Um, uh, you didn't know that many people, right? But then if you're on social media, uh, imagine that being amplified essentially, uh, or, um, uh, like a, a magnification, right? Uh, you may have known 150 people before now you're going to know, uh, thousands upon thousands of them, uh, looking at them, comparing yourselves to them. Uh, yeah. Also, not having a maybe grounded sense of community, maybe not uh, not everyone, but there would be people like that, I suppose, dealing with that sort of an issue. Um, and I, yeah, I, I could see that there being more occurrences of just being like, oh, wow, look at how all these other people are living. Let me uh, judge myself. Uh, comparing myself to them. And it's, yeah. and it's rewarded on a global scale now where it wasn't before. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, the other point is it's probably there's something to do with the the crucial ages at which this initial individuation and making yourself who you are happens. So if you're, uh, you know, it's obviously a relational thing. You, you, especially when you're younger, you're defining yourself and you are a slightly different person depending on the person you're interacting with. So if you've got so many people that you're interacting with, then you have a very unstable sense in this relational sense of who you are because there are too many different versions that need to keep popping up and it's very hard to stabilize a sense, a uh, distinct sense of who you are in this situation. Hmm. So it's probably a, yeah, something about the this, these developmental stages are really being messed up by the fact that kids are on social media really early on these days when they probably shouldn't be and should get a, a slight core sense of who they are first, like some minimal sense, and then they can hmm. use that to interact with these other people. Yeah. And also, I think just the way we raise kids is uh, kind of interesting because, I mean, this isn't so much of a problem, I think, anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is. Right. So the self-esteem movement and that outgrowth of the 80s was a really big issue. So uh, I wouldn't say that I'm sort of the product of it. But in some cases, I think I'm kind of like the byproduct of it. So I was called kind of gifted at a pretty young age. And that really got to my head. So, um, you know, my and I say, you know, to Alan, really. <laughs> so like we kind of talk about it. We sort of joke about my narcissistic tendencies, but they're there. Right. So it's not really necessarily something I could just deep uh, and the reason is, is because I was kind of, my ego was fed for a very long time when I was a kid. And, you know, when I grew up or whatever, uh, people would always tell me that I'm gifted, I'm going to do special things or whatever. And of course, this was paralyzing. But then on the other hand, it was also exhilarating. Um, mm -hmm. And then so I was listening to you, Dean, on Modern Wisdom. And so what was so cool is that you were talking, so I did this too, and this is so horrible. Uh, so you were talking about how you essentially had a library that you presented for people and you, you said something along the lines of, right, that you had this library that was just, you know, about quantum theory and it was 
about you know making sort of impressing people, right? And I remember when I'm when I started graduate school, I used to do the same thing. So I was also really deeply into quantum mechanics. And one of my favorite books is Werner Heisenberg's Physics and Philosophy. Although mm. I probably understand about thirty percent of the physics part, the philosophy part, I feel like I got down pat. But I remember telling people, I was like, oh yeah, you know, my favorite book is Werner Heisenberg's Physics and Philosophy. And you know, people are like, what the fuck is that? Who's he? What is he reading? Right? And so, but that kept me really away from a lot of people because not only were they intimidated, but they also thought I was a prick too. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that again, on the one hand, we have this sort of way of rearing children where we think going back to the self-esteem movement, where we have to make them feel special. But on the other hand now, and I'm a great example of this, it's incredibly counterproductive to do so. So uh, Dean, any thoughts on parenting and what you're seeing? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say that there are lots of people, I would say, in academia who who have this exact same thing. And it's it links to a whole bunch of other things. There's obviously imposter syndrome. You have to feel like you need to present the thing that people expect. So it's probably your expectation of other people's expectations of how you should be that then guides this because you've been raised a certain way. You've been raised to think oh this is a little genius or something like that so now mm. you need to do that you there's pressure on you to be displaying the little genius person but it ends up being this fortress of i right you're not really able to connect it distances you from people because it's never really you it's this other um individual it's this sort of other presentation that you're giving to the world so you do end up distancing yourself and i mentioned in the book i mean it's a it's a classic problem right is this um, is the child prodigy problem. And you see it in a lot of musicians. So classical music is my thing, piano. And there are so mm. many examples of people who are absolutely ruined by being the child prodigy who then couldn't make this transition because their ego, as you said, is fed by this notion that you are this hyper-special person. But then when you make it into adulthood and you get out there in the big world, you see that there are quite a lot of people also like you Lots of people who are special, who yeah. are gifted, and now you you have to compare yourselves with them, and you don't feel quite so special anymore. So if if you're really dependent on that ego boost from being special, and you see that oh you're not that special anymore, then you it's like it's an existential crisis, really. And a lot of people it really is existential, and they end up committing suicide, right. or becoming alcoholics, or something like that. Yeah, and then so I would ask Alan, did you want to ask something? No, just, yeah, just, uh, no, as far as uh, ego goes, I mean, essentially, it, it's it's like a narrative, right, that people sort of just believe in, in terms of uh, w what beliefs you identify with, opinions, conditioning, uh, essentially that, and it's actually very interesting that, like, if, if one were to actually understand uh, what makes up ego or how the ego runs in you, essentially, I mean, you could actually almost detect like for example if you became uncomfortable to a particular situation let's say some no novel experience right by default you would become reactive because that's something that's sort of outside of your sense of reality right well if you knew what the ego was and that essentially uh you want to stay with what's familiar conserve time resources uh, just survive essentially right well if you wanted to sort of combat that uh false self not that that's a great a term to use, I suppose. I suppose fighting your ego doesn't sound like a, it's it's probably counterintuitive, but um, essentially if you wanted to experience that authentic self, it's basically on the other side of that thing that you're uncomfortable with doing or you fear doing or that concept you have of yourself. So I, I, I would just say, I don't know, if somebody wanted to uh, deal with that uh, false self, uh, they they should do things that they are not uh, essentially uh, used to doing, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. I was thinking of how to articulate it, but yeah. it's the but best you, I could But, do. you know, it's sort of like putting the cart before the horse, where you essentially create this narrative that, you know, again, we talked about was instilled in you in your upbringing, most likely. And then you kind of hold on to it desperately. So therefore, you become terrified of trying new things. So let's say if I think of myself as this brilliant composer, I'm probably not going to want to write too much music. Um, well, exactly. Yeah, you have to face the consequences. I suppose... Um... Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of what you end up doing and a lot of what happens in the midlife crisis phase, you're not there yet, fortunately, you two. But mm -hmm. when you get to the midlife crisis phase, 
exactly the procedure is to get rid of all those things that you thought were what defined you all of these these ego characteristics and it's uh again it's sort of an existential thing because you realize um, none of those none of the things you thought mattered really matter um things like certain things like career and how many your sort of productivity and there's a whole bunch of things that really it just becomes um kind of pointless at a certain point and then your direction changes and this is probably this you know you have to do a sort of underworld journey and a midlife crisis is really one of these underworld initiation type journeys where you've got to face hmm. all of the things that you you know battle with all the all the complexes and whatnot and then you come out a, a little bit hopefully more spiritually elevated and hopefully less narcissistic i mean that book was written like you know i ha i had the same sort of narcissistic tendencies and we i also joke about them as well and i joke about them in the in the book we kind of have to which comes from the fact that I, I was sort of doing piano um, very early on and had sort of uh, was considered gifted there and you build yourself up. And then that led into academia and feeling like I needed to be not just good, but just ridiculously good, the best at everything and do the hardest subjects. And then I, that would take me down there. And you're just stacking pressure on yourself over and over again because it's not sustainable. And then you get to midlife and then you go, oh, that was absolutely not just not effective in any way was really destructive um you know and probably the work i was doing wasn't as good as it could have been anyway because it's coming from the wrong place it's not coming from a place of wanting to spread it and share knowledge and share things it's coming from a place of showing that you're better than everybody else right. and it's from a, like a competitive standpoint which is ludicrous when you you know once you realize that then um yeah it's a sort of a world-changing thing yeah, this is Alan's really great at this, by the way. So like, so for me, I actually put a ton of pressure on myself because I'm always hyper competitive with this podcasting thing. But Alan's actually really great about it. So what keeps him so even keel is because for him, he just views it as a message he's putting out into the world. It's for other people. Yeah, right. Uh, essentially, right. Uh, I, I agree with you, Dean. Like, it, it's it's a frame issue, right? I mean, if it's to prove that, uh, oh, I'm the best right? I'm the best at what I'm doing. I want to show that to people and I get accolades for that and be rewarded for that. Um, there, that decision tree in interactions with other people and in the, in the environment, uh, what results from that is probably uh, definitely, it's definitely different than what would occur if you were just sharing it with people or you were coming from that frame. Because I, I suppose that um if if the frame was oh I I want to uh, share it with others, uh, even even just even subtly I suppose on a tonal level when interacting with others, um, and this is so subtle, so, so very 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 subtle. But mm -hmm. yeah, I suppose the way people would receive you is is even affected, right? I mean, I suppose there's a touch of arrogance to wanting to display how how great I am, right? More than a touch, more than a touch, yeah. No, of course. There's other things to it too. I mean, there are other uh, interactions or even decisions that you would make depending on that frame that you take uh, that could lead in all these different directions. Like if there was sort of like a, a branches like on a tree and all these different directions you could possibly go, that frame already decides like so many diff different paths that you would take. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I was going to say it's absolutely true. It's extremely restrictive in what's possible because you will avoid all paths that could lead to error or mistakes or shame. So you're basically really living a very constrained life. Mm -hmm. If you go down this, if you're framing it as must be the best, then you can never be seen to be anything other than that. And you restrict your possibilities enormously, even though you think that you're you're not. Yeah, and then so another, uh, I think, important thing to pick up on here is now the ideal self, right? So we think about the ideal self and how it could be helpful in sort of mapping out or picturing the future self, right? So Dean, how would we now contrast that with narcissism? Because one could say, well, if I'm constantly thinking about becoming my ideal self, I mean, fundamentally, I'll become narcissistic. I'll be sort of hyper-focused and I'll be self-absorbed uh, kind of in some sense. And this is really kind of the only thing that's going to matter. I'm always going to compare myself to it. And I'm always going to wonder why I'm so deficient in these many ways. I mean, probably a mistake there is to speak of it as the, I mean, you call it the ideal self. I mean, you don't necessarily need to call it the ideal self. You can call it the 
I don't know. They, I mean, the authentic self would probably be better. And remember, it's just the goal. It doesn't need to be achieved because it probably never would be, but it's just the goal of removing um, projections and complexes that are not from you that are being used to manipulate you. And it even, you know, it can be your own ego manipulate, manipulating you. So it doesn't need to be some sort of ideal, idealized thing. Obviously, there is the, the problem that you have to involve, um, avoid inflation. But as you're going, so, you, you know, you, you have to avoid viewing it as some heroic sort of godlike task in itself to eliminate and destroy all of these complexes, which becomes yet another narcissistic um, task. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it needs to be a something that something that you achieve it's just eliminating eliminating projections basically mm -hmm. um i don't think there's anything that ne that needs to be narcissistic in in that i mean the problem is for most narcissists it's very hard to recognize that there is um any problem there in the first place right. that there are these projections and that there is this this deeper self i mean it's difficult to define what you mean by the deeper self I don't go into it in this book because it's just too big. A, it's just too much of a can of worms. But Jung's own idea obviously was really deeply mystical. And it's the idea that we're connected at some sense to this collective, objective, collective unconscious. And there's something like a, an oversoul that, we're, that we eventually link to, which goes in a completely different direction. I did write another book on that with a, um, a colleague, Harold Atmansbacher. Um, called dual aspect monism and the deep structure of meaning which is kind of like a second souped up version of this life is short book where it goes into the mm. more into the the sort of philosophical and physical underpinnings which goes into this idea of what the deeper notion of self that we're trying to achieve actually is because obviously in ex you're, so you're coming from existentialism um in some ways, this is a form of existentialism, and I even call it quantum existentialism somewhere and borrow from um, Yalom, Irving Yalom's um, ways of defining existentialism, which is this mm. idea that you're getting beyond the subject-object split. If you're getting beyond the subject-object split, then that means that there is literally something that is neither subject, subject nor object, that isn't self or non-self, that is underpinning it all. So the other book I mentioned tries to explain what that thing underlying the subject object distinction actually is what characteristics it has and this is the sort of the goal of this thing called dual aspect monism there is a non-dual realm underneath it um probably going a bit too far too far afield but it's an important question because obviously a lot of one of the goals of depth psychology is precisely to get to this other thing this other version this other uh, notion of the self that isn't contaminated or clouded by all of these things these ego defenses and complexes and projections right and i love that idea because if you're thinking about narcissism as just self-absorption i mean just seeing the world as this one fundamental thing makes you think that okay it's not that i matter it's sort of we matter this thing this this there's a kind of harmony with all of it and so what's so interesting about narcissism is that i find that just this is in my kind of own sort of perspective and in my clinical work is that it's actually kind of a fluctuation so sometimes narcissists are just thinking that they're perfect and that there's no sort of wrong or you know there's nothing that they do that's wrong and sometimes just the thinking is that i'm completely limitless in my efforts that i can become whatever I want. It's sort of like a development of a superhuman being, meaning that sometimes they'll accept some flaw, but it's only on the condition that they believe that they're able to fix it. So, you know, on the one hand, it's okay, I'm this deeply perfect person, right? I have nothing. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, I'll accept that as a flaw, but you know what? I'll take care of that and I'm not going to have it tomorrow. Yeah, I'm so good that I can fix it. <laughs> yeah. Even... Yeah, well, exactly. So that's exactly, that's the problem of in inflation. Even if you do end up going down this path of trying to you know, do individuation and shadow work. There is always this inflation inflation problem. I mean, it happens to a lot of, I mean, even when you're looking at mystical experiences and these kind of things, which can sometimes affect um, narcissism, or if you have psychedelics, it can then lead quickly into inflation where you feel like, yes, I had this mystical experience and now once again, I'm special, even though it's sort of supposed to be the opposite of that and supposed to have had the opposite effect. It's a it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Yeah. And yeah. Dean, what would you say some of the are some of the differences between your philosophy and stoicism? Um 
Well, I don't know. There's, as I say, there's a there's a much um, deeper picture, cosmic picture that lies beyond this book that I didn't get into because I it was meant for a slightly broader readership than usual. And what's interesting is a couple of the criticisms I've had about the book is that it um, misses the the stuff that you know you mentioned. Michael Shermer was mentioning before that it looks like it is this sort of grand heroic venture where you're battling with the universe it's an individual going against the universe and forging its path but beyond that is precisely this thing that you just mentioned which is there is a collective that lies at the end of it where we are literally all reduced to the same thing it's it's an extreme radical oh i see um so dean the connection just cut out is extreme community and extreme ah. collectivity um but it doesn't look like that in this book and i didn't even think of, of that when i was writing it but it's i mean it's a fair point because there is exactly that point missing in this book but i think for the intended audience it's probably more useful framing it the way i have as this stoical battle where you're having to forge forge your path terms of uh, other differences well as i said it's the main difference is exactly in the treatment of death death is not something that should be dismissed or taken lightly it's absolutely vital to who we are as humans we wouldn't be humans if we didn't have it we would have this limitless um, um godlike status which would remove sort of the, the basic principles of being humans of being selves, of making decisions that matter, having to sacrifice things. I think that's crucial. We didn't really get into that here, but the notion of having to sacrifice some possibilities and some versions of who you might be and some relationships is absolutely vital. It's um, it's one of the few ways that we might be able to link to these older notions of initiation, which involves sacrifice right which is missing in modern society um it's one of the few versions that we that we still have where we can sacrifice something significant for what we view our, as a greater good i.e becoming who we're meant to be or, or something along those lines no yeah. oh, right uh pe people look for pleasure in the moment essentially right um they they tend to uh, discount the future because they see the now as all there is. And essentially, I mean, to an extent, not even to an extent, it is literally true. There is only this moment, right? However, there is that ability that we have to sort of project into the future or sort of, a, or rather project some sort of outcome that we'd like to attain or um, just, or a goal that we have, right? And sometimes it's like what you're talking about right now, right? Like sometimes you do have to maybe sacrifice something now, or maybe, for example, uh, somebody might say, oh, I shouldn't be studying now. I, or rather, I don't feel like studying now. I just want to rest. There, there could be an argument for that. Maybe you do need that rest, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe you should study now. Maybe you should put that work in now. It may uh, feel uncomfortable, right, to either to the ego or to just your notions of um, of comfortability, I suppose. But yeah, s sacrificing that now so, so you could have a better future is, is a beautiful thing and, and worth doing, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really the important thing is the notion of a balance between a pair of, of attitudes, which I call Puer and Senex, right? There's this battle between over-focus on the past and future and over-focus on the present. And if you if you are constantly saying, no, I'm not going to ever rest, well, then you fall down the path of the bulletproof, um, the bulletproofer who is constantly trying to be invulnerable. And it's a perfectionist path. So you can't overdo it. So you then you have to refer, so you need a little bit of Senex and a little bit of Puer. And really you need to stand outside of both of these poles and see which one is appropriate at the particular time. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting, so on the differences to the Stoics again, I mean, one of the interesting things about Seneca's book is that it looks a little bit bizarre from the modern perspective, because what he's saying is, you know, it's written against this particular person who is going into retirement. And he's saying, look, you should you should have some rest now. Stop trying to, you know, make the future so perfect for yourself. 
stop putting so much time and effort into the future. Whereas these days we think the opposite. It's kind of, there isn't enough of putting time and attention into the future and future generations. So we seem to be have gone somehow 180 degrees to the kind of concerns that Seneca was dealing with. I mean, you don't really need to tell people, many people today, don't worry so much about the future. Focus on your present pleasure and your pleasant circumstances. <laughs> so we, we tend to want to tell them more. Focus a little bit more on your future, maybe, than you are on your pleasant hedonistic desires. So we, yeah. so we, so it's probably a, a, a difference in the in the civil in the culture and the civilization that has generated some difference between my view, my views, and the and these Stoic positions. Right. And I love that since we talked about the mice uh, experiment, which I really love, and uh, since I write about the distinctions between healthy pride and egoism or narcissism, I think the idea to remember is that we all need some dose of pride. So the idea is that, like, guess on the one hand, you have narcissism, but at the other extreme, you would have something like borderline personality disorder, which is absolutely zero pride. So zero self-esteem, where the kind of concept of pride is itself. Uh, and I could kind of see some of the downsides to it. We've had uh, several psychologists on who've kind of like David Myers is one of them. So Myers, is actually kind of against pride he's like yeah you know it's kind of good in minor doses but ultimately it's pretty corrosive so and i agree about that to some large extent but even still i would say in terms of what just the psychology research shows is that we need some semblance of pride to get through the day we need obstacles we need to feel good about ourselves and we also need to feel like we're masters of our kind of domains to sort of you know to whatever extent so to speak and so what i what i love about your work dean is that the focus is essentially it's it's both right we're accepting these human qualities but then we're also trying to overcome so we're kind of sort of going beyond our particular limits while at the same time, uh, while at the same time as going beyond our limits, we're also accepting these sort of frailties. So I think ultimately what you're saying is a harmony between the frailty, the weakness, uh, the kind of the existentialism of our lives balanced out with the striving, uh, the overcoming, uh, the sort of going beyond our limits. That's what makes up a good. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it in a nutshell, is this balance between those opposing, opposing forces, yeah. 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 And I mean, and of course, the pride is giving you a little sense of reward as well. There needs to be some little notion of reward that you're getting and you're rewarding yourself with a, a feeling that, you know, you've achieved something that's worthwhile. And if you didn't have that, then you you would again be going down the path of this um, bulletproofer who thinks right. it's never good enough. And that's not good either. So the, it, it's a really tricky balancing act that the hum that we humans um, have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love so much about going back to Sherber's idea. And, and, you know, I mean, say what you will. I mean, obviously, we're not going to agree with everything Michael Sherber says, but I love the idea of the scales, right? Because now when you're thinking about pride, you can say to yourself, okay, because I'm an important member of my community in whatever form that takes, I can feel proud of what I've done today. So we get up in the morning, let's say I serve my clientele. Uh, you know, Alan has his position in his company, right? He, you know, for the insurance industry, uh, you know, he helps a lot of people get insurance, obviously, and that's a great thing. And then Dean, you write books, you know, that help us existentially so all of that to whatever extent now going back to again the community form of the scale that that makes us feel proud of ourselves because we feel like you know today we've done a good job for other people and for me at least you know that just doesn't seem like there are too many more important things in that yeah i agree just one um just one final thing about this that connects to this notion of community again is um one of the reasons for going down this particular wider cosmic view where we're sort of part of the universe and engage with the universe in a deeper sense is precisely to try and trigger a deeper notion of obligation and um sort of custodianship for your world and your community because one of the things that we find in especially in, in a lot of the popular science at the moment is that we're pretty much um biological machines and we can be edited, we can be gene edited, and there's nothing really very special about us. We're sort of accidental, you know, uh, an accidental appearance in, in this kind of bleak universe. That doesn't give you a whole lot of um, inspiration to go out there and fix things and fix the universe and help in your community and help the planet. Whereas if mm -hmm. you've got this wider conception, which is that there's no real division between you and the universe, subject and object, you're bound to it, and we mm -hmm. all are. Then you feel a bit more um, sense of custodianship and this sort of participation in it to fix it and help, I think. That, that was the hope anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. That there's an interdependence, right? Without you, the essentially, the, the universe would not be in the sense that you cannot experience it. And then without an observer, um, it cannot 
I mean, without an observer, an observer can't be there and witness. It's not in that right? same. It's not in that same shape or form. Yeah, without the observer, right? Right. So that 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 sort of interdependence. Uh, there's there's that relationship there, and it's it's incredibly vital. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. All right, Alan. Before we wrap up, any final questions for Dean? Yes. Uh, so, Dean, uh, where where can we follow you, uh, follow your work, and also uh, buy the book as well? Um, well, the book is available. I think most places it's it's available. Well, it's on Amazon anyway. If you go down that, there'll be lots of copies on A books, but it's in most bookshops. I actually have no internet presence whatsoever for reasons given in the book, in fact, and reasons that we've kind of discussed here. Um, I don't know. Somebody did a Wikipedia page. There's various bits and and other podcast appearances on YouTube, but apart from that. Um, I can be found on email and my uh, university webpage. I love it. Dean, thank awesome. you so much for coming on, man. Such a This was awesome. Time. Yeah. Thanks a lot. That's right, talk to you Thanks, soon. Thanks, Dean. Man. Take care. See you. All right. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the hit bell, the bell on, YouTube. on YouTube. And thank you so much for watching. See you next time.